Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to part two of my listener's time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and this is the second of our special episodes of my time capsule, where listeners to the podcast have told me the thing they would like to put in their own time capsule. Some good, some bad. If you've heard our first episode, you'll know that I talk to listeners from all over the world, amazingly. But in this episode, we have only one guest from overseas. From Ontario, in Canada, in fact. But everyone else is a resident of the UK. We start with an old friend of my time capsule, Justin Moores, who regular listeners will recognise as the man who saved our bacon by managing to open the recording of my chat with Josh Bolt. Yeah, you remember Josh. He's the one who's a mate of George Clooney, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg and Sir Derek Jacobi, amongst others. Justin lives down on the Jurassic Coast and is a dedicated walker, which is, of course, what we talked about when we linked up online. But is that what he wants to put in the time capsule? And if so, why? Let's find out, shall we? Here is Justin Moores. So what have you been up to recently? The same old, same old, walking, walking. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where have you walked? You've walked everywhere, haven't you? Well, all round Dorset, and I, I go down to Dartmoor quite often as well. I love Dartmoor. I do a bit of wild camping down there as well, you know, opening up the tent in the morning to the sunrise, if the sun is shining, obviously. <laughs> Not on Dartmoor very often, no. Well, if you don't like the weather on Dartmoor, wait five minutes. That's basically what they say. <laughs> yeah. Did I notice the other day that you there was a shot you took at night with the stars going over? Oh, yeah, uh, that was last week. It's like a wooden henge made of logs. It's standing on the southwest coast path, a place called Worth Matravers. Just a whim. I thought, you know, it's a really clear night. I, I want to have a go at these star trails. I thought, oh, just on a whim, I'll go there and try it. And it, yeah, came out really well. <laughs> I was really chuffed with it. Yeah, it looked beautiful. Although, to be fair, Mike, that, that was slightly cheating, that one, because I knew that it was going to take about 40, 50 minutes to take the photograph. 
and I was actually parked next to where. <laughs> so I was actually sat in the car watching telly while the camera was doing its work and I was sipping coffee. So Not exactly Bear grills then? No, no, no. I kept that one quite quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll cut this bit. I won't. I won't. <laughs> I am interested, though, to find out what is the thing you'd like to put into a time capsule, Justin. You could probably guess. Yes, I think I can guess. It's going to be my first pair of walking boots. (laughs) And when did you get them? Actually, not that long ago. It was Christmas 2019. Right. 2019, just before we were in lockdown. So walking is a brand new thing for you, really? Very, very much so, yeah. Um, I was really, really unfit, incredibly overweight. I was like, you know, sort of 24, 25 stone, very lethargic and sedentary lifestyle, um, sat behind computer screens all the time and, yeah, didn't really sort of do anything. Wow. It's all started in March 2019. I had a bit of a scare with my heart and was rushed into hospital. Basically, you know, they they sort of fixed me up, but I was left with a heart condition mm. and was told that I needed to lose weight. And when it's your own health, it's it's not necessarily something that you, you know, really sort of embrace and get on with it bizarrely. Yes, I know. I tried to do a bit and and lose a bit of weight and you know, I did lose a little bit. But the turning point came in the October of 2019. My sister was diagnosed with terminal cancer and it sort of knocked me for six a little bit. Um a lot. <laughs> so I was going to visit her every single day. She, you know, she went into hospital that she was diagnosed. She never made it home again. Oh Lord. Um, so she was in, in hospital until the November and then she was put into basically like a care facility, like hospice. Mm. And uh, she'd been told in the October she had about six weeks to live. And she was sort of staying very positive about Christmas. And we were all like, yeah, okay." Um, And basically it was watching her, you know, every day was different. You know, some days she'd be on good form and we'd be having a laugh and a joke. And she was kind of in denial of what was going on. And then other days she could be very conscious of what was happening and looking very, very poorly. It was it was a very strange roller coaster ride. But being outside looking in at someone else who was going through a, you know, a really tough time, it sort of opened my eyes up a little bit. And I thought, geez, I, you know, I've, I've got to do something about my own life. I don't want, it's, it's quite selfish in a way. I, I don't want to go through what my sister was going through. I mean, how she did it, Mike, I, I, well, I mean, I know there was no choice, but, no. you know, she, she was amazing. What was your sister's name, Justin? It was Yvette. Yvette. I feel we should name her. Yes, absolutely. Quite right. <laughs> Just makes it a little bit more raw, but... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's good. It's, it's good. She's been a massive motivation. So, um, yeah, I, so I'd sort of said to, to my wife that, you know, I needed to do something. This this was it. And I thought walking was a good way to do that. Because mm. even then, walking was quite painful. You know, I'd walk a mile and I'd be in pain. You know, my back would be aching. My knees would hurt. My hips would ache. It wasn't great. Mm. But I figured of all of the exercises, I couldn't face go into a gym or anything like that. So I figured it was something I could do at my own pace and have control over it. And there was places that I'd want to see. I, I live in Dorset. I look, I've got the southwest coast path, you know, the Jurassic Coast on my doorstep. Oh, marvellous. At the time, what would I have been then? 40, 47. And I hadn't seen. I hadn't actually walked down to places like Durdle Door and, and what have you, <laughs> which just seems quite bonkers. You know, it's one of the most photographed places on earth and I'd never walked there. And yet it's on my doorstep. So, mm. you know, I had these things in my mind that I wanted to do. So Kerry, my wife, bought me these boots and that's what was going to be my thing. I was going to go and start walking. And then 
Just to sort of add to that, December the 31st, I actually made for the first time in my entire life a New Year's resolution about getting this weight off and getting fit. Yeah. And in a whim, I was on the on the internet, went onto Weight Watchers website and I signed up and that was it, done. I'm doing it, I'm going. <laughs> and I think it was the second meeting that I'd gone to. Yeah, it was the second meeting that I'd gone to. I started straight away in January. I'd been with my sister the night before and said to her, I'm going off to Weight Watchers. I'll be there just for an hour and then I'll be with you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'll see you in a little bit. And she decided to shuffle off while I was at Weight Watchers to Uh kind of put a stamp on it to say, you'll never forget me and you'll never forget what you're trying to achieve. Or maybe that she was happy now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'd addressed something that needed to be addressed. I'm delighted that your sister made it to Christmas. Yes. Oh, she did. And she'd actually been getting worse and worse and worse. And she actually sort of sprang back into life for Christmas. And her Christmas dinner, she'd been looking forward to that. She went back for seconds of her Christmas dinner. It was the biggest meal she'd eaten in probably three or four months. Mm. And yeah, she actually had a a lovely day. It was a very emotional day, but it was a a lovely day. She did it, you know? Um, So yeah, it it was fabulous. Oh, brilliant. Well, those walking boots have served you very well because I can see you. I mean, I know this is an audio thing, but other people can't see you. And now I look at a slim, fit, healthy man. And so in those two years, that change is extraordinary, Justin. Flattery will get you everywhere, Mike, obviously. Well, I didn't say sexy. <laughs> you did before we started recording, oh, but you know, sure, that's sure, just sure, between sure, you and sure, I. Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've managed to lose just over 11 stone in two years. Um, and then, as you know, because you followed and, and helped me as well, I did the Macmillan Mighty Hike on the Jurassic Coast. So mm-hmm. I actually did get to walk all of that coast that I've been dreaming of doing. And I was able to raise not a bad sum for Macmillan as well at the same time, which was amazing. I'm doing it again this year. Yeah. It does show, doesn't it? If anybody's listening to this, it shows that although it would seem like an impossible thing, it seems an enormous thing to do to lose that amount of weight, 11 stone. Oh, it was ridiculous. It was an absolute mountain. But how I did it, I, I was 24 and a half stone when I signed up with Weight Watchers. Yeah. So it was like, right, little milestones. Because if you look, I want to lose 10, 11 stone, whatever, you, you'll never do it. It's, no. it's, it's too much. It's too much for us to handle. So um, the first thing I looked at was getting to the next stone bracket. So I wanted to see 23 as the main number. So I only had to lose half a stone, Mm. which I actually did in the first week, unbelievably. (laughs) And to be fair, when you're that big, you can lose it a lot faster anyway. Mm -hmm. So then it was to get to the sort of the stone measure and then to get to a stone. So it was another half stone and then I would have lost a stone. So it was always those smaller little milestones that I was heading for. Yeah. Which, ironically, I've always laughed and sort of called it bite-sized chunks. Um, <laughs> you're actually doing completely the opposite. So, Yeah, well, that is clearly the way to do it, isn't it? Otherwise, you would really mm. look at the task and say, no, this is impossible. I'm never going to change that much. No, absolutely. And there's so much more that came out of the walking as well. It wasn't just the physical. Obviously, I had a lot of health anxiety with my heart problem. It it was causing me all sorts of problems with that. I had the upset and, and sadness of my sister and losing her. So there was all these other issues that were sort of bearing down on me, as well as the normal pressures that we all have of, you know, sort of working, making ends meet, paying the bills, you know, the usual sort of things. And the walking was an escape mechanism for that. So it was, uh, well, 
discovered my time capsule for a start. <laughs> so that was a good thing. Yes. But it's a long time to be walking sometimes. You're walking three, four hours and you will think through all sorts of things. I think that walking is a terribly good contemplative thing. Well, Rita Simons, mm. um, in her episode, yeah, she mentioned mindful walking. And yes. she is absolutely right, Mike. It's fabulous, you know, actually being in the moment because the number of times that I, I found myself I could be walking, listening to something or whatever, and then you just sort of disappear off away from things. You're not actually necessarily thinking about what's going on around you or or whatever you're thinking about what shopping you've got to buy what jobs you've got to do you know I've got to mow the lawn and and you disappear off in it Mm. and staying focused with what you're doing and and just the the sort of real basics of things is, is so good for your mental health definitely so how many walking boots have you been through Justin um, I've got three pairs now. I've still got those original boots. <laughs> I look after them, but different boots for different things. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we will take those original ones and put them in your time capsule for you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for doing this. It's an interesting experiment to see if it works, and uh, you're the first person I've spoken to, and it does work. So that's really fabulous. Very honoured, Mike. Thank you. These boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna... Well, they're gonna wear out and they're gonna need to be replaced, obviously. But not the pair in Justin's time capsule. You can imagine how encouraged I was when my first foray into chatting with listeners turned out like that. And not long after that, I spoke to our next guest, Jennifer. Now, Jennifer would rather we didn't mention her full name, as she speaks to me rather candidly about living in an abusive relationship. In fact, some listeners may find this upsetting, but I hope Jennifer's story might also help people who may be going through something similar. Anyway, it was fairly extraordinary that we were talking at all. I mean, Jennifer lives in Canada, and I'm in England, and yet, as she said... Well, considering where you are, I mean, we're thousands of miles away and it's like we're in the next room. It's incredible, isn't it? And it's instant. How do they do that? How is that? It's not possible. I have no idea. You're asking the wrong one. (laughs) You need an IT person. You've got to interview Yeah, yeah. Well, the two of us, in our ignorance, will carry on in bliss, though, I think. So, okay, let's see what we've got. Okay, so I was married for 33 years to the love of my life. And he passed away due to complications of his lung cancer and COPD in 2019. I'm sorry. Well, I was too. But I have to tell you, it was an abusive marriage. Right. And I don't think I really realized the extent of the abuse. Or for some years, I don't even realize that there was abuse going on. Because this was not a man who pummeled me on a daily basis. In fact, he pummeled me very, very little because I would have been like my mother and got up on my hind feet and fought back. But there are all kinds of levels of abuse and types of abuse. And when you're in something, sometimes you can't see the totality. And it's like being in the forest. You can see some trees, but you don't have any idea how large the forest actually is. Mm. And so it was only after I had buried him and was dealing with some of the aftermath of his financial abuse that I recognized it for what it was. And my older sister had advised me, go and get some grief counseling. Now, one of the things my husband had always been adamant about was, you know, you don't talk about family things. You keep everything quiet. It's nobody else's business. So that was how I was trained for 30 years of my life. And it was very difficult for me to go and find a counselor. But I found one at our local hospice. 
I'm still seeing her almost three years later. And she's really helped me get some of this in perspective. But one of the things she and I both struggled with is that there's really no training or resources or information out there for widows and widowers who are survivors of an abusive relationship. No. Because our grief journey is in many ways similar to everybody else's. There's anger, there's sorrow, there's a sense of loss. There's all the typical reactions to grief and stages of grief. But we have Mm -hmm. this added component from dealing with just because the person's dead doesn't mean they stop hurting you. No, What they did to you in that relationship stays with you and you have feelings of guilt for staying in the relationship and what it may or may not have done to your children. There's just so many things that we have to deal with. And of course, that constant abusive moulding of your character, as it were, turning you into the person that they want to control. Well, and convincing you that you can't function on your own in society. Absolutely. Which is insane because I make a really good wage. I'm respected in my profession. Mm. I've been president of my provincial library association. I've spoken at conferences nationally, provincially, internationally. And yet this man was able to make me feel less than I am and to control me in some fashion. And it wasn't You know, when you see on television and film instances of spousal abuse, they often are really dramatic, emotional and psychological abuse. And in reality, that's not what a lot of women experience. It's not every day the guy is god awful and you wish he was dead. (laughs) We all know how painful it can be if somebody just ignores you. The silence is uh, is painful. And I had that too. If he was really mad, he wouldn't speak to me for weeks. Uh, he was mad at my daughter because her marks when she was in elementary school weren't good enough. And so his response was not to speak to her for three months. But, you know, sometimes silence is golden. So it wasn't always a bad thing. <laughs> and he could be loving and supportive. And if there hadn't been moments like that, I'm sure I would have left. But there were a lot of them. He was diagnosed as mentally ill with depression when he was about 40. Mm. And when I look back and see some of the patterns of behavior, and sometimes you can only see this in retrospect, when you're in the moment, it's unclear to you. I realized that he obviously was suffering long before that, probably before I ever met him. And it just became worse and worse. I mean, we, we got into a pattern, Charles and I, and I was accepting of the behavior. And, and once you start to accept it, the process accelerates. And then in 2016, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I think this was a real shock for him. And when you're dealing with somebody who's not mentally well, these sorts of diagnoses can drive them to play out some of their behaviors even more so. And that, that certainly was the case. The number of times he became abusive weren't increased particularly, but the extent of the abuse was. So the worse it got, the more it seemed to be your fault. Uh, He had a real missionary complex. And in fact, the year before I met him, finished his degree in religious studies and had planned to enter the seminary. Who knows what kind of priest he would have been. But uh, (laughs) he didn't blame it on me. He didn't make me feel like it was my fault particularly. But it just, I was never enough. And he would threaten to leave me. Mm. 
And at that point, I thought, I can't function without you. I don't know how to, you know, he paid all the bills. He looked after the financial things. He dealt with servicing the cars, paying the taxes. And I thought, I can't do this on top of managing my work. And, you know, I was primarily a solo parent in many respects. And by this point, you were basically the breadwinner as well. I became the primary breadwinner for sure. Mm. And then he had this totally wacko break and decided to buy a house in New Brunswick, which he cashed in all his savings. And he went to New Brunswick. And you know what, Mike, he phoned me every day and he sounded like he was having the vacation of a lifetime and was obviously really happy to talk to me and share that with me. So you never knew where the hell he was coming from. It was was a shit show. So then you have to suffer this grief. And then you get this grief. Okay. And so when he died, I found out that he had cashed in all his savings and it was all gone. It was all gone. There was not enough money to pay all his debts. Everything was in disarray. He co-signed one girl, her car loan. So now his estate was responsible if she didn't pay her car loan. He did buy a house in New Brunswick, but he bought it for some girl who said, I'm struggling in financial difficulties and I don't know how to get through this. So his response was to buy her a home in New Brunswick. And that's where all his retirement savings had gone. And I thought, you know, your son has recently got married. He's purchased a house. You had promised him for like 20 years that you would give him a significant down payment for that free and gratis. And you can't do that because you've gone and bought some other woman a house, a stranger virtually. So that's a very strange attitude to life, isn't it? But it's almost a Jesus complex, isn't it? I will be your redemption. Well, now you can see like he was always drawn to the priesthood. So this was another way of fulfilling the same role. And what we learned as he went through all this was that he'd never been really clinically depressed. He was bipolar like his father. Most of it through his life had manifested as depression. But when he was diagnosed with the cancer and when he had the colossal and life-threatening reactions to the chemotherapy and the radiation and later to his addiction to snorting Percocet, he became manic. It must have been a nightmare. So having gone through this, well, first of all, without ever really admitting to yourself that it's happening, and then you have the shock and the grief of losing your husband, and then you discover all the things that have been going on all these years, and then you see the relationship for what it was. How do you come through that? The first six months after he passed, my head was spinning. I really missed him. Every time I saw a picture of him in the house, I was bawling my eyes out because we had had many good times. And Mm -hmm. I know he loved me and he loved the kids, but his way of showing it was bizarro. But at the same time, I thought, how could you love us and do this to us? It's something I struggle with every day because, as I say, after they pass, they still hurt you. You know, you sit there and think 33 years of my life, what could I have done differently? If I'd left you, you know, would the kids be in better shape than they are now? Would I be in better shape? Would I have found somebody else and not have walked on eggshells for three decades? And I never knew what mood he was going to be in and how, mm. uh, it, whether he was going to be loving and caring or whether he's going to be abusive. Yes. And I think I should point out that at, at some points in the marriage, there was physical abuse. Within very early in our marriage, I remember one night folding laundry in the laundry room. My son was a baby, he was sleeping upstairs. And Charles came into me dead drunk, with a revolver in his hand, held it to my forehead and threatened to kill me. Wow. And I just told him, I I said, you don't have the balls. And he walked away. 
That's some sort of relationship, isn't it? But then I hope that you telling this story, I mean, often it's the case that people who are victims blame themselves or feel that they're responsible for what happened. But it's because you wanted this thing to work, so you kept at it. It's not your fault at all. What's come out of it that you would say is really good? I've learned I have a voice that I can loan to others because there are other women out there going through what I went through and probably blaming themselves So I do talk to women and and do some counseling on my own to women Mm. that I know who are going through some difficulties in the relationship that are somewhat similar. And it, it gives me strength knowing that I can help others. And I have formed this online community. And it's great because you get each other. You understand everybody's journey is a little different, but there are similarities and we understand them because we've been through that. And it gives you that inner strength that helps you to cope every day. And it's the worst thing, isn't it, to feel that you're the only one? Yeah. You feel so isolated. Mm -hmm. You almost want to die because it's a horrible thing and you're lonely because you can't share it with anybody else. No, You need to talk to somebody who understands. And my grief counselor has been great, but she's readily admitted that she has no training in this. And she, I'm the first one she's come across in all her years, but I know there's more out there. And I, I think many of them are not going to grief counselors. And I tell you, I probably wouldn't have if my older sister hadn't made me do it. And God bless her because it's been a good thing for me. So if there are any women out there going through an abusive relationship, reach out. There are other people like you. We don't have to be alone. Not necessarily what they tell you is going to be helpful all the time, but some of Mm. it will be. And the community is important. You can't just do this on your own. You know, if you are going to stay, reach out and get some help and find ways that you can stay and be safe for yourself. Very good advice. Jennifer, thank you so much for telling us about that. I hope it's going to be of use to some people. I'm sure it will be. Well, thank you, Mike. It's almost been fun. (laughs) Good. And I, I really hope that that day does come when you can put it all behind you and live for yourself more. Well, here's hoping. What an amazing story, and what an amazing woman Jennifer is. If you recognise her story in any way and feel you need help, do, as she says, reach out. There are some links to organisations that are there to help in the description of this episode. Right, our next guest is a man called Paul Robinson. I once knew a young lad called Paul Robinson. In fact, I went on holiday with his family 25-plus years ago when he was a young lad and I was in my late 30s. (laughs) I haven't seen him since. And I had no idea that he was a regular listener to this podcast until he wrote in suggesting something he'd like to put in a time capsule, something that was very familiar to me. So I just couldn't resist talking to him about it. I hope you enjoy our chat. So, my item to submit to the time capsule is my watercolour picture of Oswald Street Cricket Club. Oh, my word. But not just Oswald Street Cricket Club, the old pavilion, Uh. the ramshackle changing rooms, and the slightly worse condition score box which is, it's literally my prized possession. This is the thing, you know, people always say, you know, what would you run into the burning building and, and get where your house would be on fire? This is it for me. Um, <laughs> Pushing your new baby boy out of the way. Oh, definitely. Well, he can walk now, so, you know, he can look after himself. The, the painting can't walk. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is the only thing which I insisted on having when we were clearing mum and dad's house. And I'm not, I'm not a sentimental person at all, so I don't have 
a huge number of pictures around the house. I don't tend to have family photos up and, and things like that. But that picture in itself just captures so much of my history. It, it's a remarkable thing. So it hangs directly opposite the front door. So it's the first thing I see mm. every time I come in the house. And uh, you know, one of the things about this podcast particularly is it makes you think about your items and objects in, in a slightly different way and perhaps a little more thoughtfully. And I don't know if it's something to do with turning 40 as well and this sort of, you know, now I'm on death's door, obviously. <laughs> I'm just so ancient. Uh, starting to kind of take stock and think about my life in different ways. And, you know, sort of one of the things I started doing in, in my head, not to the point of, you know, writing them down, but I think, I've chosen my desert island discs and then it's you know or what would i choose if i were were on the my time capsule podcast and i've done things like um i've written out my top 50 albums of all time and i'm going to do like a little review of each of them and actually you know have it designed <laughs> almost like it's a magazine yeah. article so i can give it to to evan so you know in a few years time you can sort of see the sort of things that i used to listen to but yeah so i'd, I'd thought about this in the context of my time capsule and, and this was like the only thing which really stood out this was my number one thing how brilliant yeah we ought to confess, Paul, that in fact, I've known you nearly all of your life, haven't I? Yeah. And yet you are just a listener to the podcast. Now, we've been on holiday together when you were a boy. We have, yeah. And I won't repeat what you said when I reminded you how long ago that was either. <laughs> I said, oh, is it only two years? Yeah. <laughs> it seems so much longer. Yeah, exactly. I knew your parents very well. And you live in Oswestry, which is where my wife was brought up. I do indeed. In fact, your parents moved into the house that my parents-in-law used to live in. So you were brought up in that house. Exactly, which overlooks Oswestry Cricket Club. So I know that view extremely well from the living room window of that house, looking across the road to that pavilion. Yep. So you played for Oswestry, did you? I did, yeah. My brother and I for years and years. And actually, I'm going to be playing again this year, which is a scary prospect. So I actually retired from cricket eight years ago largely because, well, I was knackered all the time, but also you know, it was just becoming a huge time commitment, really. And Oswestry were playing in the Birmingham League and you know, you'd be going to an away game and you'd see a sign that says Gloucester six miles and you think, Jesus, this is a bit of a stretch, really, for amateur sport. Yeah, so I packed in, but I'm starting again this year after an eight-year hiatus. So I've had a few indoor nets and the state of me the day after is just absolutely horrific these days, <laughs> um, unfortunately. So, yeah, I can't laugh, cough, get downstairs or anything. So, um, What's your best game you think you ever played for Oswestry Street Cricket Club? Uh, my most memorable game certainly was we played away at Maidley, so a team from the Telford area. And they had a, a West Indian fast bowler playing for them by the name of Tino Best, who you may or may not have heard of. So he, mm -hmm. he played a number of test matches for the West Indies. He's the Tino in Mind the Windows, Tino, Freddie Flintoff's infamous sledge that was caught on the Lord Stump microphone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Tino would have been, I don't know, 17, 18, something like that. And we played on a really, really slow wicket. Um, but my friend Alex Huxley, who we all call pro, he got 50 just played him beautifully and he was getting angrier and angrier and angrier at this obviously you know the the west indian fast bowler professional who's come over to knock over all of us clueless english amateurs and <laughs> uh, yeah alex played him absolutely beautifully and then i was batting nine or ten um for Austria. so i came, came at the end and i was quite happy with that because i figured that tino would be done and dusted by this point so i can just you know farm the dibbly dobblers at the end of the dig and of course he came back on didn't he to wipe things up and uh i ended up hitting him for about 16 or 18 off the last over of the innings including a 
ball which dropped about a foot, foot and a half short of hitting him over his head for six. Wow. And, I mean, I was standing somewhere near the umpire, the squelling umpire, you know, backing away so far and had a massive yahoo. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I still uh, I still milk that one, certainly. And some people will even occasionally bring it up down the club without me doing it first, which is... Which is expensive. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. £10 a time, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. That's why I had to give up for eight years. <laughs> but the professionals occasionally will turn up in a club match, particularly beginning of the season, as a sort of a warm-up, don't they? Yeah, you'll get them either at the very start of their career, like Tino was, or certainly when we started playing Birmingham League and you're playing against the bigger clubs, so we were playing in the same league as Wolverhampton, and they had um, Wasim Jaffa, who opened the batting for India. Mm. He's definitely got a Test Match double 100, and you're thinking... You know, I'm bowling at Wasim Jeffrey in a competitive game. You know, <laughs> how is this possibly happening? You know, I had 15 pints last night. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so you, you do get the odd one. And I think what, one of the things that I'm trying to get the club involved in is looking at getting an overseas player in a slightly different context. So I'd really like us to get um, a female overseas player for next year. Right. And I think exactly to your point about bookending the serious business for them. Now with the advent of the hundreds and, you know, it's obviously a short period of time in the middle of the summer. I think there's an opportunity there for clubs to get proper famous, you know, seasoned professional female cricketers to come and play. So that's, that's what I'm trying to work on for next year. How um, brilliant. That, yeah, that would be amazing. Well, it's a lovely town, Oswestry. I have very happy memories of it. And I have quite happy memories of that clubhouse, actually. My mother-in-law's 60th birthday party was in that very clubhouse. And there was entertainment. I seem to remember that the comedian for the night was an extraordinary man who you may well know called Fred Wildegoose. <laughs> do you remember Fred? I do indeed, yes. Who was just about the worst comic I've ever come across, who never quite finished a joke, but as a result was hysterically funny. I don't think I've ever laughed so much. I was going to say probably the worst and the best that you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, one of life's just naturally hilarious people, um, really, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, actually, in these days, that would have been a fantastic reality show, just following Fred around in his day-to-day life, you know, a sort of six-part BBC Three series. Wouldn't that it would just? That would have been priceless. Yes. Yeah. Those inadvertent phrases that he used. I remember him describing, in fact, for years afterwards, whenever we saw someone playing the organ, we would say, well, there he is. He's playing on an organ that's completely unknown to himself. Said, come on, big congratulations to our musician this evening who's playing on an electric organ there, completely unknown to himself. I think that's illegal, isn't it? You'd like to think so. Maybe not in Oswald Street or in, in that clubhouse particularly. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've definitely witnessed many things over the years in there which were perhaps slightly sketchy from a, a legalistic perspective. But yeah, I mean, but I think probably most of my memories around that place aren't necessarily directly cricket related you know not really things that happened on the pitch and again coming back to me turning 40 last week the thing that I really remember is dad's surprise 40th birthday party down there I can even remember how we got him down there I'm sure I was involved in it so I would have been 10 at the time and I think it was you know there's a leak under the sink behind the bar or something like that I mean literally the worst person you would ever send to any sort of domestic incident he was completely <laughs> clueless um, which I hate to say that I have inherited but because we lived over the road and dad was you know Mr. Oswestry Cricket Club so he was at various times he was the chairman the barman what would pass for a chief of selectors you know mm-hmm. so yeah we, we managed to get him down there uh, the thing I remember more than anything else He's just sitting there in the corner drinking a can of Coke or what have you and just thinking, why is that man so happy? What has he got to be happy about? <laughs> he's 40. He's 
basically dead. You know, his life is done. What is the matter with him? And then, you know, that's where I am now. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And yet he played for Kai Glass, didn't he, your dad? He did, yeah. And that's the rival cricket. Well, I, they're not really the rival of Oswestry, are they? They're... They'd be the feeder team, wouldn't they? Oh, know? right, OK, feeder <laughs> team. Well, so you've got to be careful because, actually, even after all these years, I am still a patron of Kai Glass Cricket Club. Are you really? I am. I've got a tie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced if you've got a tie, that would entitle you to open the batting in any game that you choose. Oh, OK. Well, I'll be down next weekend. Wonderful. (laughs) Paul, how fantastic. What a beautiful picture that is as well, I have to say, because I know that view very well and I know people can't see it. But do, if you can, send me a photograph of that and we should put it up on our website so people can see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, of course. You've brought back many happy memories for me and it's lovely to see you. Yes, you too. Thank you. Cheers, Mike. As Stephen Wright used to say, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to have to paint it. How nice to catch up with Paul after all these years. And who would have thought it would have happened because of my time capsule? And the photo of that painting will be on Twitter and Instagram. So have a look at Oswestry Cricket Ground. It's a cracker. Right, it's ad break time, but we'll be straight back after these messages. So as some people say, don't go flipping. Whatever that means. I still don't know what it means. Anybody got any idea? No. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back to part two of part two of our listeners' time capsule. And we're off to a little place just outside of Preston, delightfully named Freckleton, where Martin Richardson is waiting for us, which is a good thing because he's our next guest. Martin, thank you so much for doing this. It's really sweet of you. Uh, and we're going to talk about some things you want to put into a time capsule. Well, oh, I mean, this is fairly simple. It's, it's actually a 1986 documentary produced by BBC Bristol. 
Now, back in 1986, I was 16 years old. I actually found myself in hospital with burns to my leg. Um, so I was in Preston Hospital for uh, just under four weeks while I had some skin grafting and while they healed. And at that time, when I was 16, I really wanted to work in television. I wanted to be a cameraman. How did you end up in hospital with burnt legs? Uh, I was involved in a, an accident with a bonfire and ended up burning my right leg. Uh, the trousers ended up melting and sticking to it. And when they pulled the material off, because they were a synthetic pants, when they pulled the material off, most of the skin came with it as well. So I ended up having to have uh, skin graft into the, to the top of my right leg, which it's all right. It doesn't look particularly pretty, but then neither does the rest of me. So I'm not, uh, not too worried about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but late at night on BBC Two, while I was in hospital, just started a documentary, which was filmed by BBC Bristol. And it was a six-part documentary all about nurses. And I do not know, even to this day, I don't know what it was that really gripped me about this, but I, I watched it and it was it was fascinating. It, I, I don't and nothing up to that point had really grabbed me as much as this documentary did. Mm. And the 16-year-old me thought, I don't want to be a nurse, I want to be a cameraman. Well, it would have been a strange decision for a 16-year-old boy in those days. Yes, yeah, I think it would have been. But I have to say, definitely with the documentary, something just twigged with me or clicked with me with the documentary. It was wonderful. It really did make a massive impact on me. And it was probably 18 months, two years later, and something again just clicked and I thought, I'm going to go and become a nurse. Mm. And my mother had been working at Lytham Hospital and said, well, get your job interview. There's an auxiliary nurse job going on the elderly psychogeriatric unit. Yes. And started work the following Monday as an auxiliary nurse on uh, an elderly mental illness ward. It's amazing, isn't it, that you go straight into the job and you learn on the job? Oh, yeah. And it was a bit of a shock to the system. The first couple of weeks, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Mm. And again, I just suddenly fell into the rhythm of the job and I really started to enjoy it. And three months down the line, again, it was my mum just turned around to me and said, don't be an auxiliary nurse for the rest of your life go and do your nurse training and applied to several different nursing colleges, one of which was Manchester. And they they were quite happy, even though they said from a qualification point of view, you've got the right grades, but they're just all in the wrong subjects. <laughs> and it was wonderful. The 25th of May this year marks 30 years for me in nursing. And I have to say, I have loved every single minute of it. And I don't think I would have gone into it as a job if I hadn't watched that documentary. So in a way, you can be grateful that you burnt your legs. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's fate. It, it's got to be fate. Um, two years ago, I contacted one of the nurses that was in the first episode, a lady called Vivian Hancock, who's semi-retired now, mm. and, and told her basically the same story and said, you know, if it hadn't have been for this documentary... It would never have occurred to me to go into this line of work. And, and it's been the most rewarding thing, I think, in, in my life. It's been fabulous. Every day is different. Yes. And she must have been thrilled. She was. Um, I think she was very surprised that uh, sort of near, very nearly 30 years on, somebody out of the blue had contacted her. But she, she was. She was really quite pleased that it had made a bit of an impression. Mm. And a good one at that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, then we'd definitely put that documentary into the time capsule as your good thing. So what's the bad thing? Well, ideally it would be COVID-19, but I think that's probably going to be too big. It's got to be a full set of 
personal protective equipment, a full set of PPE. Oh, right, yes. Part and parcel of the job, I'm no stranger to death. I've experienced quite a bit of death over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to think I know what... Death isn't nice, but what would make a good death in terms of making it peaceful, making it as stress-free, as pain-free as possible for the patient. And one of those things is human contact and and close human contact. And the fact that there were a lot of people who had to go through that without the closeness of their loved ones because they were not allowed to visit. And also having to put up with medical staff who were looking like extras out of close encounters. Mm, That's right. You never see a smile. No, absolutely not. It's those little things that communication becomes difficult. Yes. I can't even begin to think how traumatic some people's deaths must have been, just simply as a result of all these things that that went on and the restrictions. And it's the fact that working in PPE isn't particularly pleasant. No, I'm sure. For hours and hours and hours. Exactly. Mm. It really is. It's awful. It's almost indescribable. And people refused to wear a mask on the tube because it was uncomfortable for about 20 minutes. It's a strange world we live in. I've not had the opportunity to ask people because I've not come across anybody directly in that position. But it must have been deeply galling to have people saying this thing was a hoax. Oh, it was. It was. It was was so frustrating because... I have been seeing people affected by this. I've been seeing people taken ill, um, become weak, in extreme cases dying from this, and turn around and say, oh, it's not real, it's a hoax, it's the government trying to control you. Mm. And then when you you become ill with it yourself and realise how debilitating you feel Mm. and how awful you feel and how you struggle to breathe, Mm. that is, I can't think of a worse way to die than not being able to breathe, than suffocating, than being totally aware of everything else that's going on around you and struggling to get your breath with every fibre of your being. Mm, You're right. It must have been absolutely awful. And I'll take this opportunity to say from all of us, thank you for being there for those people because I think there are very few of us who would have had the courage. Catching COVID yourself may well have been fatal to you. You're taking a risk every day going into work and trusting that PPE equipment to protect you and it's an extraordinary thing to do to every day to walk into that hospital with the risk of death i know it's probably a bit of a, a glib thing to say that it's my job but it is well, and it's a job that i love it's a job that i enjoy i do know there are some nurses that were very deeply affected by that and, and did struggle with the jobs um, what can you do in that situation when fear overtakes you i'm amazed that half the profession didn't say no i'm not going in there i'm just not going in but they didn't so, Martin, thank you very much, and it's a privilege to meet you. Thank you. Ah, no, it's grand. It's, it's lovely to speak to you as well. Hi, it's re-grand, Martin. Yeah, sorry. So, just one guest left. Right, we need someone witty, interesting and informed who has the gift of the gab. Hmm, I suppose we better go to Liverpool. Yep, right, let's chat with Tim Easton about what he's going to put in the time capsule, which was inspired by his brother, Phil. Phil was a radio presenter and DJ on Liverpool's Radio City for more than 30 years and also the matchday announcer at Liverpool Football Club. But I'll let Tim tell you about him and the thing he inspired. 
So let's let's talk about the thing you're going to put into a time capsule, Tim. Well, it's a bit of a cheat, I have to say, but it was a means of trying to bring in all the things that have been important to me in my life. Right. In terms of my big brother, Phil. Um, Phil was my best friend and brother, and he was taken from us in 2009. But... One of the things that he bestowed on me, which has kind of become a bit of a thing between me and my friends, is my alter ego, which is <laughs> Timothy Steeples, he meets famous peoples. Now, <laughs> let me explain a bit further. Okay. So we're going back to the 80s now, and my big brother, being eight years older than me, really was like a surrogate uncle slash father because my dad worked his ass off and was not often around, but my brother used to take me to see films at cinemas that he didn't want to go and see, you know, like Bambi and things like that. (laughs) And as we got on, he introduced me to alcohol, clubbing, all that kind of good stuff. Mm. And there was a situation one day, he got into commercial radio. um, Our very first example of a steeples, which is what Timothy Steeples does. And the rules (laughs) of the game are you have to meet somebody of public stature, who would be known by others in a situation that would be regarded as everyday and unexpected. So something that would be thrown out of court by the Steeples Adjudication Committee, mm-hmm. which does exist, three <laughs> members. Yeah. If I said, Ooh, uh, I saw Brad Pitt last night, people would go, did you? I then revealed I'd seen him on stage at the Wyndham's Theatre in London. No Steeples. No good. Likewise, waiting for autographs at the stage door. Yeah. So basically... It has to be inadvertently getting on a bus, sitting down and realising you're sitting next to Tom Hanks. Correct. Right. obviously happens all the time. All the time. He's so annoying, isn't he, Tom? He's often in Withenshaw, that (laughs) one. And the reason for it is my brother used to roll his eyes when I said, honestly, I have seen someone. And again, to sort of put it in context, I'm getting a bit of my own medicine because my mum, bless her soul, used to come up with stories of being helped across the road by Roger Moore when we lived in London. And we said, yeah, of course, Mum, yeah. And then (laughs) the incident at Sandringham on Christmas, because we had family in in Norfolk, we used to go there for Christmas, where she saw Captain Mark Phillips dressed as a tramp mingling with the crowds outside, you know. (laughs) And then looking back at it, she was actually probably Kath Steeples, she meets famous people. But anyway, there's all these situations. Mm. But over the years, it kind of reminds me of my brother, who was very shy and retiring when he wasn't broadcasting or doing his job. Mm-hmm. And when he passed away, sadly, in 2009, we had a very private funeral for the family. And then all of a sudden there was this demand to have this memorial service. And we we turned up at Liverpool Cathedral um, at the end of March in 2009. And there was the entire Liverpool First team there, Rafa Benitez, China Crisis sang, Chris Berg sang You'll Never Walk Alone. Wow. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, where the hell did all this come from? And he was the complete reverse of me going... I've seen Tom Hanks on a bus. <laughs> but anyway, over the years, so at the end of the 80s, he got fed up with this, and we were both fans of his comic, and he named me Timothy Steeples. He meets famous peoples. Yeah. So this has become a bit of a thing. Uh, so, for example, my friends, uh, this is Devonian Git. DG lives in Letchworth, and he's on his way into London, and he noticed this old duffer going, does anybody know how to work one of these things? And he was gesturing with a phone. Yeah. Nigel went across and said, is there any problem? He said, oh, these bloody mobile phones. And it was David Tomlinson. <laughs> and all the poor chap was doing was, I think, just trying to get people to spot him in public, and Nigel did. So that, we got that down as a grade A steeples. The committee passed it, and so on and so forth. Brilliant. It's a great shame he wasn't standing there saying, did anybody know how to fly this kite? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, exactly, yeah. So again, steeplisms are kind of nice memories of nice people in nice situations and um, inadvertently dropping yourself in it like the time when Phil first started. He wasn't long on Radio City in 1975. Mm. And um, there was this bunch of chaps who emanated from the South, ended up in the studio, and we got, I got chatting to them. And, and I, I said, did you enjoy working on Billy Lyle's album, Phil? And Phil Collins turned around and said, what do you mean? I said, well, <laughs> Bill Lyle's, he's just had a solo album out, and you play on tracks three, five, and seven. He goes, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. So Phil had to go to the music library and get the record out and spot it. And he, he's just, he's shaking his head and why? You know, why would you do that to me? But yeah. I think the thing it proved was that, you know, in the main, people are just people. They're all very nice. Mm. And it went down as yet another steeplism. And then the other occasion where he was beside himself was, um, it must have been about the summer of 98. I'd just had a particularly tough day down in London. And I was coming home to go on a family holiday to Ireland for three weeks. Mm-hmm. I'd been to a record store. I just had one of these newfangled PCs that had this hole in the side you could put a CD in. <laughs> and I bought a shitload of CDs. And the plan was I was in first class in Virgin all on my own. They brought the tea out, and I stepped back, put the headphones on, got the CDs ready to go through them. And this bunch of Yanks zoomed onto the train. Long-haired louts they were. <laughs> and they all surrounded me, and they're all very giddy and are very American, all very young and cool and hip and stuff. And these two young ladies sat beside me, and I just kind of did the English thing and nodded and grunted. Mm. And next minute, these girls are going through my CDs. And it's like, <laughs> headphones out. I resigned myself. I thought, they want to chat. They said, so, uh, you know, what kind of music? So I just shared this, and then there was sort of a bit of a lull in the conversation. They said, hey, so do you like Bon Jovi? And I said, I'm really sorry, but I will only go and see that poodle-haired rock when hell freezes over. <laughs> there was a silence in the carriage, and a tap on the shoulder, I turn around, it's Richie Sambora, the guitarist, <laughs> and the man himself. And I, I think I did the right thing, because I said, you're going to think I'm going to say... I didn't really mean that. What I meant was, I'm going to say, honestly, I like this kind of music and that's not really for me. Mm. But Hell Freezing Over was perhaps me being dramatic in front of these two nice young ladies here. Anyway, got chatting and it turns out that Richie Sambora and myself, our first ever gig, not simultaneously, but on the same tour. Mine was at Liverpool Stadium, he was in New York and we both saw Queen blow Mop the Hoople off the stage back in (laughs) 1973 and that was it. By the time we're getting to Stockport, where I should have got off, mm. we carried on. And they said, right, well, you've got to come and see us. We've got to prove to you. And what it was, was it wasn't actually Bon Jovi. It was Richie Sambora's solo tour. Right. And he was coming along for the ride. So I said, look, you know, based on what I've said, it would be a hypocrite of me not to come to give you a chance. But mm. there's three of the mates I play in a band with, and they would love it. So I rang all these lads and said, I said, this mate of mine, Wayne, I said, Wayne. Richie Sambora, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and um, they didn't believe me. They no. did not believe me. I said, honestly, lads, please. So they trusted me. We turned up at the stage door and thank Christ we got four tickets and had a great time, got invited to the after party. And so I think that that was a steeples that has gone down. It was a golden job, that, basically. Oh, how brilliant. The other one in, in a similar ilk was... I was working in Poland and I was on my way back home via Copenhagen. And uh, you must have done this when you've seen someone you think is from your local or somebody you've met or what have you. I walked across to this chap <laughs> and I said, all right, Vince, 
and I then realised, I said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, it w- was Alice Cooper. Oh. And he said, why did you call me Vince? I said, well, that's your real name, isn't it? And I'm th- really sorry, I thought you were somebody I knew from a pub or something like that. He said, wow. come and have a drink. So I had half an hour in Copenhagen Airport with Alice Cooper. <laughs> and I, I reported that back to the committee and they said, yeah, you're absolute bollocks. And I said, look, just check this out. I think he's going to sing at a charity concert at the Albert Hall where he's doing a couple of Who numbers. And I think it was like a Who event. Anyway, the lads go through all the newspapers and sure enough, they said, oh, go on then. So yes, that was my half hour in Copenhagen Airport with uh, with Alice Cooper. I've had a steeple. But Mike, you can't. You're famous, mate. You no, can't no. steeple. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that famous. I can bump into famous people and not know who they are. That's great. <laughs> On the day of my son's 21st birthday, yeah. I went to London to do a, a recording. And as I came out, I was walking through Leicester Square and I saw some buskers. And they had a little crowd around them, but not very big. And I thought, they sound just like the actual band. And the lead singer looked just like Fran from Travis. Oh. <laughs> and then I looked more closely and it was Travis. They were busking. They were busking in Leicester Square. And nobody had really noticed. (laughs) I stood there and watched them, thinking, this is brilliant. And then they did another couple of numbers, and they said, anyway, we're performing tonight at this place, and we like to go out, you know, warm up by going out and doing a a little bit of busking. If you want to give us some money, we always give that to charity. So thanks very much for listening. Anybody wants to come up and have a photograph or anything? So they stopped, and then one or two people went up and said hello. And I went up and said, I'm really sorry, it's my son's 21st birthday today. (laughs) He really loves Travis. You couldn't, you know, sign a card to him or something. And Fran said, well, give me your phone, let's call him up. Fantastic. So I rang him up and said, John, I've got um, Fran here from Travis, wants to say hello to you. And he went, what? And I handed it over and Fran went, hi, John, how are you doing? All right, great. Uh, So what are you doing for your 21st? (laughs) He invited him to London and put him in the VIP section, and they went to the after-show party. And during the concert that night, Fran said, we've got John here, it's his 21st birthday, come on, everyone, happy birthday. (laughs) And the whole crowd sang happy birthday to my son on his 21st birthday. Oh, Gosh, best 21st present ever, that. Yeah. So I'm awarding you that steeples, Michael. Hey! Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, then, absolutely, I'm going to put Timothy Steeples, he meets famous peoples, that goes into the time capsule, and it's gorgeous. Thank you. Brilliant. Pleasure. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my very special guests, Justin Moores, Jennifer... Paul Robinson, Martin Richardson, and Tim Easton. Do subscribe to this podcast and maybe leave a review. And you can follow me or my time capsule on most social media, well, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, which I suppose is most social media. Yeah, I might get the hang of TikTok one day. The theme tune by Past the Peas Music is available to download or stream on Spotify, and this has been a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton-Stevens. I hope you enjoyed our experiment. I certainly have, and I'm sure we'll do it again. So if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, why did they pick those bloody people? I mean, I've got a much better story than theirs. It's rubbish, that was. Get in touch. And I might see you sometime. Cheers. Bye. Oh, no, I nearly forgot. A joke. Yes. (laughs) You thought you'd got away with it, didn't you? No, I've still got a joke for you. Okay. um, Yeah, this is the best I can do at short notice. 
I was busking the other day. I'm a one-man band. I had a drum attached to one foot, got a cymbal attached to the other one, a hooter between my knees, and a ukulele and a kazoo. And then this policeman came up and he arrested me. He arrested me. All right, he said, come on, come quietly. Come quiet, come one-man band. Oh, never mind. Look, I said it was short notice. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.